you wanted to find two words to describe the problems or the challenges that human beings face, weakness and ignorance are good candidates for those two words. There is much that we do not know, and there is much that we are powerless to change. Now, lest you be quick to get offended, I'm not accusing you all of being totally ignorant or totally weak. By God's grace, many of us are smart and capable. And I even include the Longhorns in that. You could argue that humanity's great project over the last few hundred years has been to try to find ways to solve our problems of weakness and ignorance. So we live in the midst of this age of scientific discovery, discoveries that have allowed us to know much more about our surroundings, whether those are things far off in space or tiny things, microorganisms and things like that. These technological achievements have given us power that we never before enjoyed. We have air conditioning and antibiotics and automobiles and airplanes, right? And those are just the A's. There are millions of discoveries that we benefit from every day. And yet, we have to face the fact that our scientific advances have not totally overcome our weakness and ignorance. We are all still subject to death. We're powerless to overcome that. And even though we have really good three-day forecasts about the weather, the 10-day forecast is still pretty shaky, much less a month or a year away. If you want to think or you imagine the things that most maybe disturb you, it's just thinking about the future. How will my finances hold up or my health? In addition to these remaining evidences of weakness and ignorance that we've just talked about, we also know that great evil still exists among human beings. And so despite all of our progress in knowledge, that increased knowledge has not erased the evil thoughts and desires and actions of human beings. Nor do we have any good way to predict when some individual is going to do some atrociously evil thing. So we've made progress, but we've not progressed beyond hate and lust and selfishness and pride. By introducing the topic of evil, then, we start to see that our weakness and our ignorance are not morally neutral. So our ignorance is at times willful ignorance about God's truth. And our weakness is in part a disposition to delight in what is evil and self-serving. We're starting this way this morning, talking about weakness and ignorance, because those are the topics of Daniel chapter 2. At least as it focuses on the people in the chapter. This chapter begins with the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar having a bad dream, and he doesn't know what it means. And he's powerless to get this knowledge from the wise men that he's taken such pains to surround himself with. He can't get this knowledge no matter how much he cajoles or threatens this band of wise men. So we're presented with this great king, this would-be emperor, who's ignorant and weak, and he can't sleep. But he's not the only one in the story who's ignorant and weak. As I just said, the wise men that he surrounded himself with, they too are ignorant and weak. They can't gain the knowledge that he wants from them. 
And in a sense, we'll see that even the young, pious Daniel and his friends are also in a similar condition. So this morning, we're going to look at this ignorance and weakness on display and how the characters in Daniel chapter 2 respond to their, their condition, their weakness, and their ignorance. First, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar is afraid and angry because of his weakness and ignorance. He's doubtful and angry, and his wise men just give up. So that's how they respond to their ignorance and weakness, anger, and giving up. And then we'll see how Daniel responds to his ignorance and weakness. He responds with faith and prayer. And as, we'll look at, as we look at these two responses, we should ask, what makes the difference in how these two groups respond? So first, let's look at how Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men respond to their ignorance and weakness. We see they get angry and they give up. Let's read Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Bibles we've forgiven you or you got it off the back table, it begins on page 737. Listen to God's word from Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. This is God's word. God. Again, as this chapter opens, we find Nebuchadnezzar greatly troubled. He's had this disturbing dream, and you know maybe we can relate, but it seems that this was even of a, of a scale and intensity beyond what we normally experience. The dream is making him lose his sleep because he has an urgent sense that what he saw in the dream was important. It's important and meaningful for his reign as the king of Babylon. And as the chapter goes on, we're going to see that he was right, that this dream was urgent and important. And so Nebuchadnezzar does what any good Babylonian king would do in this situation. He calls in the experts. 
We read they're called here the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell him his dream. These different categories probably included some people from Egypt who had this status as magician and others from around his empire. And they also include this group called the Chaldeans, which would have been like the ancient elite wise men of Babylon. But here is where Nebuchadnezzar takes an unprecedented approach. Normally what the king would do in this situation is he would tell the wise men what he dreamed, and then they would provide the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar does not take that approach. He won't tell them even what he dreamed. He orders the wise men to tell them, tell him both the dream and what it means. As we read, this does not go well. It starts off bad and just gets worse. So Nebuchadnezzar threatens the wise men with torture and death and ruin for their households if they cannot tell him the dream. And then he promises great rewards if they do tell him the dream and what it means. When they ask him for a second time to tell them the dream, he starts hurling accusations at them. He says, you're just playing for time. He says that they're conspiring to lie to him until the time changes, which is a euphemism for saying until there's a new king. He's telling them, you don't want me on the throne and you're just waiting me out. But note that Nebuchadnezzar is doing all this because he's full of doubts about the trustworthiness of the supposed wise men. Right? His requirement of them to tell him the dream is, is his method that he's cooked up for, for data validation. Right? He doesn't trust that they'll give him a right interpretation unless they're given this supernatural knowledge to know what only he knows what he dreamed that night. So he, he believes that if they can tell him what he dreamed, then he can be confident in their interpretation. This back and forth concludes with the Chaldeans' response in verse 10. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. This seems to be an attempt to bring the king to heel. So Nebuchadnezzar, we've learned, is a new king. This is only his second year. And so they're telling him, look, Nebuchadnezzar, this is not how things are done. You know, we were here for your dad, and this is not how he did things. You're not acting in the way that Babylonian kings are supposed to act. Essentially, this is unfair, what you're asking of us. Of course, no king wants to hear this from his nobles, right? To be told, this is not the way your dad did it. And so we can expect what's happening next. But more important is their final sentence. They say, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And even though we can see that Babylonian uh, wise men are, are playing for time and trying to cajole the king, they're also right. They can't tell him the dream and no, nor can any other man. And they identify the problem is a God problem. That God is high above, or what they call the gods, and they are down below, and the gods don't dwell with men. And so they cannot know. Only the gods can know, and their gods don't share this information with the Babylonians. The Babylonian gods do not reveal mysteries to their worshipers. And so because of their God problem, 
the Babylonian king and his wise men are stuck in their ignorance and their weakness. They're stuck like this because they don't have a God who graciously reveals truth to them. It's in this way that the Babylonian wise men are right, in a sense. And look at what it turns them into. Nebuchadnezzar is full of doubt. He can't trust these so-called magicians. He can't trust these wise men who are supposed to be able to see the future through their sorcery. And fundamentally, it exposes the Babylonian gods themselves are untrustworthy. And so cut off from any chance to know the truth, the wise men give up and Nebuchadnezzar gets angry. Verse 12 said, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Friends, look and see where your false gods will leave you. Full of doubt, fear, fury, and hate. Now, if your trust is in money, money can't make you promises or reveal the future. Will the market go up or down? You know, ask your bank account or your financial advisor. He'll say, if he's honest, I don't know, or he may lie to you and tell you he does know, right? Will inflation erode your savings? How long will it last? We don't know. If your trust is in your reputation at work and your power there, how long will that last? Will you get canceled for something that you say? Will you be phased out and replaced by someone who's cheaper to employ? If your trust is in a relationship, what happens when that relationship disappoints you? Or you feel that you can't trust your partner anymore? You see, the way our, our false gods will leave us weak and ignorant. And how do you respond when you start to feel that weakness and ignorance? You know, so often we go through life ignorant of our own ignorance. We don't know what we don't know. But sometimes we come face to face with it. What do you do then when your weakness is exposed? Again, the wise men of Babylon do get something right. No men can do what Nebuchadnezzar wants. So their helplessness is real. Again, how do we respond when we sense that helplessness? Nebuchadnezzar's response was only to make a bad situation worse. He responds to this situation with fury and a resolve to destroy. Now we could argue in some grand sense the Babylonian wise men deserve this, right? They were pretending to be wise in a way that they weren't. They were capital I idol worshipers involved in sorcery, which was contrary to God's law. But as we see beginning in verse 13, there were some numbered among the wise men who were not deserving of this sentence. So let's turn now to Daniel's response. Nebuchadnezzar's fury brings Daniel and his friends back into the picture we learned in chapter 1 they went through this period of training, so it may have been that they were still in this time of training when this all goes down with Nebuchadnezzar. And so they weren't involved in these discussions between Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men, but they were still numbered among the wise men, and so they are under threat of death. Let's read verses 12 through 16. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Last week, when we looked at Daniel 1, I mentioned how well things had gone for Daniel, all things considered. If you're going to be torn away from your home and have to leave your family, ending up in the king's palace was not a bad place to end up. Getting this elite training as a wise man was a a pretty good uh, plan B. But then look at how things have changed for Daniel. Because he's in this elite training program of the wise men, now him and his three friends are facing death because they're numbered among the wise men of Babylon. And it's important to point out here that Daniel himself is in a position of weakness and ignorance, right? He he doesn't even know what's transpired until the captain of the guard tells him. And he's in a very vulnerable place, right? He's in the clutches of the powerful king of Babylon who can have him killed. So Daniel is himself, in a way, weak and ignorant. And even when he goes to make this appointment with the king... He still doesn't know the meaning of the dream yet, as we'll see. So how does Daniel respond to his own weakness and ignorance? It would not be hard to imagine Daniel crying out in self-pity. Woe is me. Why did you put me here? Why did you rescue me from from Jerusalem only to bring me to be killed in the courts of Babylon? We've heard Israelites say similar things, haven't we? But he doesn't do that. When faced with the news of the warrant out for his death, he does two things. First, in verse 14, we're told he replies with prudence and discretion with the captain of the guard. God had given him this ability to know what the right thing to do was in this situation. And so he doesn't panic. He doesn't protest. He doesn't try to run away. His wise response is to inquire about the urgency of this decree. Like, why do we have to do this right now, essentially, you know? Why is everyone in such a hurry to kill so many people? And apparently Arioch sees the wisdom in this. Like, yeah, we don't need to do this right now. And so he doesn't arrest Daniel immediately. He doesn't execute him right away. He listens to him, and then he helps him make this appointment with King Nebuchadnezzar. And without knowing the dream yet, Nebuchadnezzar... Daniel makes, makes it a point to, to set up a time, it gets a date on the calendar, to go talk with Nebuchadnezzar. It's a very bold thing for Daniel to do. But consider how different his response is from the Chaldean wise men. They say, this is impossible, we give up. You're obnoxious, Nebuchadnezzar, for even asking us of this. Their point is the gods, they don't dwell with us, they don't tell us this stuff. And so there's no way to go forward. But Daniel takes a different approach. Why does Daniel take a different approach? Well, that leads us to the next thing that Daniel does. Look in verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Why does Daniel react differently? Well, he tells his friends what's going on. He asks them to pray to seek the God of heaven 
and ask God for mercy. Daniel and his friends clearly understand what's at stake, that, that they're going to be killed if they don't find a solution. And so they ask God to spare their lives, you know, to tell them this mystery, but so that their lives would be spared. And here we see the key difference between Daniel's response and Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men. We saw a few minutes ago that the, the king and his wise men had this God problem, right? That they couldn't trust the gods of Babylon to do anything for their weakness and ignorance. But the foundation of Daniel's confidence is in that he knows that God is a God of mercy. Chapter 1 has already told us that God has given Daniel gifts and God has given Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief eunuch. So Daniel has already seen that his God is merciful. He's kept him safe through this time of exile. He's given him favor. Daniel's wisdom is not that he has some secret knowledge. Daniel's wisdom is rooted in his faith in the merciful God of heaven. This presents another correspondence and difference with the Chaldeans and Daniel. So the Chaldeans know that their gods don't dwell with flesh. Their gods are way far away in the heavens. And repeatedly in this chapter, Daniel calls his God the God of heaven. But Daniel doesn't conclude from that, from the fact that his God is the God of heaven, that his God is therefore far off and silent. Instead, he trusts that his God is the kind of God who has compassion on his people and the God who can reveal this mystery to Daniel. Remember, as an Israelite, Daniel knows that the God of heaven has been pleased to dwell among his people in first the tabernacle and then the temple. He also knew that the God of heaven had graciously made a way for sinners to come and approach God and to offer sacrifices and have their sins atoned for. He also knew that the God of heaven had revealed his law to his people, that he had given his goodness and wisdom to his people through his word. And so because Daniel trusts this one true God, the God of heaven, he responds to Nebuchadnezzar's threat with faith and wisdom. In the face of death, Daniel and his three friends, they pray. They call out to the God of mercy and wisdom and ask, give us your wisdom and show us your mercy. Brothers and sisters, we can take a very simple and profound lesson from this. In the face of our weakness and ignorance, we should pray. Pray to the God of heaven, the God of mercy. Prayer is not a wish that we offer up to the sky. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to our merciful God, the God who rules over heaven and earth. To be clear, prayer does not automatically remove every fear or remove us from every danger that we face. God does not give us always visions like he gave Daniel. Perhaps he never will give us a vision through our whole Christian life. But we can know that God is the same today for us as he was in ancient Babylon. That he is merciful and wise and trustworthy. So confidence in the one true God, the God of compassion, should lead us to pray. A good way to examine your faith is to ask, when I'm faced 
With my weakness and ignorance, what do I do? Am I full of doubts and fear and anger? Or do I turn to God in prayer? It's also clear here that Daniel involves his friends in praying, right? He asks them to pray for him that he will be able to see this mystery. We should pray and we should ask others to pray for us. We know that from chapter 1, God gave Daniel insight to have uh, insight into dreams and visions, right? But Daniel doesn't treat that knowledge fatalistically, right? He doesn't say, well, I've been given this. I guess I'll just assume that I'm going to get it right. He prays that God would reveal this mystery to him. And he asks his friends to pray in accordance with God's will. That's instructive for us also. Pray God's word back to him. When was the last time you asked a brother or sister to pray for you? What did you ask for prayer for? Faith in our merciful God should lead us to pray. That's Daniel's response to his weakness and ignorance. In verse 19, we see that God heard the prayers of Daniel and his friends, and the Lord gave Daniel a vision in the night and revealed the mystery. So let's read verses 19 through 23. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, the, of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Notice in verse 20, as the prayer of praise begins, Daniel praises God, blesses God's name for his wisdom and might. And then notice in verse 23, he says that God has given him wisdom, and might. Right? What have we been talking about? Ignorance and weakness. God has exactly what everyone in this story lacks. Everyone was ignorant and powerless, but God has wisdom and might. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know the interpretation. The wise men were powerless to get it for him. On their own, even, Daniel and his friends couldn't know and couldn't do anything about it but they can pray to the God of wisdom and might. And because of this wisdom and power, the God who establishes kings and removes them, the God who has authority over times and seasons, the God who knows all things hidden in the dark because he is light, he can reveal these things to Daniel. He has made known to Daniel the king's matter. Daniel prayed because he knew his God was merciful and powerful and wise, and God reveals his mercy and power and wisdom. This is a point at which I think we might be prone to some angst. Like, well, again, I want a vision like that. You know, I want to have this Daniel-like experience. And I understand that. But I want you to see that Daniel's vision was received by Daniel and in a second communicated by Daniel, not only for his own sake, but for ours as well. That what Daniel hears and reveals 
is for our sake too. This is what Pastor John read for us earlier. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced. We're going to read some things in a second that were announced. They weren't only announced through Daniel or only for Nebuchadnezzar, but they were announced for our sake so that we can know and trust the living God for ourselves. And that's where we turn to next. We see that our hope is wrapped up in God, the God who is the everlasting king in his never-ending kingdom. So after Daniel receives this revelation, he praises God, and then he's ready to meet with Nebuchadnezzar. So I'll begin reading verse 24 and then make a couple of comments. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? It's amazing how much the writer keeps us in suspense. Like we know that Daniel's gotten the vision, he's blessed the Lord for the vision, but we still don't know the vision yet. And yet now he's getting ready. He's coming before Nebuchadnezzar. The revelation is coming. And as we get to this um, speech of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, we see in the first part of the speech that Daniel wants to make it clear that Daniel doesn't have the capacity to get this revelation. It's a revelation that comes from God himself. And so in a sense, when Nebuchadnezzar asks his doubting question, can you, know, you really do this? He's right to ask that. But as we'll see, Daniel is able to do it because of what God has revealed. And so let's read Daniel's, Daniel's speech to Nebuchadnezzar and the response. This will be the longest reading, 27 through the end of the chapter. Daniel answered, in the, answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut, by, cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors 
and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and, to, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mix with soft clay, so they will mix one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So we see that Daniel's speech has these three parts. So first he confirms to Nebuchadnezzar, what the other wise men have said. He kind of gets them off the hook. No one could tell him what he wanted to know. But then, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar's problem is not mainly that he had the wrong wise men, but that he had the wrong God. And so in verse 30, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God made known the interpretation so that you may know the thoughts of your own mind. How amazing and profound is Nebuchadnezzar's weakness and ignorance. He was unable to know the thoughts of his own mind, but God graciously revealed them to him. Once again, we see this same problem playing out in our own minds, don't we? We don't know why we do what we do. Why do we keep falling into that sin? We don't understand ourselves, and we're powerless to change. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that's where Daniel would have us look. In the second part of the speech, we get the vision. He tells us what the dream was, this vision of the great image or statue in the shape of a man with the, the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and the midsection of bronze, the bottom of leg, the legs of iron and then feet of clay and iron. And then this vision, the stone emerges out and destroys the image. Apparently from the bottom up, it starts with the feet and goes up. So nothing is left after the wind drives away the remains. 
And after the dream comes the interpretation. And we find this dream is about these kingdoms that will rise and fall, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom. And it's at this point that we start getting into the weird interpretations of the book of Daniel. This is a little preview. This is like the tamest version of them. But people want to know, well, well what were these four kingdoms, right? We know that we got, we got Nebuchadnezzar down, right? He's the head of gold. But what's the next one and the next one after that? So the tradition goes that we're looking at Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And, but it's, it's notable that these are not named, right? We're not told exactly what they are, and that seems to be on purpose. And we're going to see another pattern of four kingdoms later in the book of Daniel. But there is something that's very clear about this vision, and that is how these kingdoms are destroyed. Right? The rock rises up, which Daniel says is God's own kingdom, the never-ending kingdom that God set up. And this is what I want you to see, that this, this mystery that God reveals is for our sake. So we see this again in verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. The point of all this is to show that human kings and kingdoms like Nebuchadnezzar's will come and go, but God will establish his own kingdom, a kingdom that's mightier and more glorious than all of these that have come before. It's clear that the kingdom is established by God himself, and it will never end. Right? The, 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 the vision takes pains to note it's a stone that's not cut by human hands, a stone of supernatural origin, split, and apparently coming up out of the earth or from below to destroy this image. So God gave Nebuchadnezzar a vision of his own mortality and temporality and of God's eternality and power. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar is so full of praise at finding this out. It's not really good news for him. I guess he was just excited to know, or maybe he thought from this that he would have some kind of enduring kingdom, or he was flattered that his kingdom was the one of gold and of superior quality. But the clear message is, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will have an end. It's just going to be succeeded by another and another and another. But there is a God in heaven, a God who knows past and future, a God who sets up kings and tears them down, and he will establish his kingdom. Human kings are ignorant and weak, but God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Now, how is this supposed to be encouraging for us? We'd hardly call this a gospel presentation here in Daniel chapter 2. It seems maybe just like a vague declaration of sovereignty and power. But as we meditate on it, I think we find there's much good news wrapped up in this revelation. For one thing, notice that God's kingdom breaks a cycle of violence and destruction that marks every human kingdom. Right? The best thing that the next kingdom can do is just destroy the old one right? and establish their own power. It's an endless, or seemingly endless, cycle of violence. And we, we've seen that on display in this very chapter. What do kings do? They get angry and order people killed, right? That's what Nebuchadnezzar has been trying to do. That's what human power is like at its worst. And Daniel is spared, but only because of God's intervention. God's grace is what makes the difference. 
It makes a difference not just for Daniel and his three friends, but for all the wise men of Babylon. They're spared because of God's intervention. We see that happening on a small scale in Daniel's life, and it happens on a grand scale in all of history. After the kingdom of God emerges, it does bring judgment on these human sinful kingdoms, but after that, the time for judgment ceases. There's no kingdom that follows after God's kingdom that that destroys it. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of eternal life. And then we might ask, well, how does this kingdom emerge? Like, where does this uncut stone come from? Well, we might say very practically, a kingdom needs a king. And so in Daniel 7, 13, some of the most famous words of Daniel, we find Daniel say, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So God's never-ending good kingdom of life is led by this glorious, eternal king, the one called one like the Son of Man. In our Old Testament reading, we saw that this king with a never-ending kingdom is a descendant of the house of David, that God would establish his throne forever. And we find that in the Gospels, these threads are tied up into Jesus Christ. What is Jesus most like to call himself? The Son of Man. And he's revealed to us when he's born as the Son of David, the Son of God. He is the Christ the long-awaited king. So the everlasting kingdom that God promised here in Daniel only comes to be because of the coming of Christ. If we could borrow the language of Daniel 2, we might say that Christ is the stone cut by no human hands. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And yet, his kingdom and rule is one that no human king would ever have chosen. Jesus' rule and reign doesn't come because he defeats Rome with military power, but he defeats Rome by suffering death on a Roman cross. He suffered death to pay the price that our sin and folly deserves. He put on human weakness to take the place of foolish sinners so that we could be saved from sin by faith in him. He died and was buried in the place of sinners, but we know that he did not stay in the tomb. On the first day of the week, he rose from the dead. Because of his perfect righteousness and obedience to God, the tomb could not keep him. And so the everlasting kingdom of God is the kingdom of resurrection life established by our King Jesus. And so the the Easter festival is not a celebration of the miraculous resurrection of one man. Instead, it's a celebration that King Jesus has ushered in this kingdom, this new age. Resurrection Sunday was the first day of the new creation. It was the sign that God's kingdom of salvation and life had overcome the dark and destructive sinful kingdoms of this world. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, the countdown clock on sin and death 
started, started ticking. And this brings us back to the way Daniel responded to the, the news that Nebuchadnezzar was out to kill him. Remember how he responded by faith, trusting in the power and mercy and the goodness of his God. Daniel responded knowing what kind of God he served. But think of all that Daniel did not yet know. Yet he was still living by faith. And now look at the privileged place in which we stand. Do you want to know a merciful and gracious and wise God? Look to Jesus, the King. We don't have to look back to a tabernacle or a temple of the Old Covenant. We know the grace and wisdom of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for sinners and rose from the dead. And so when we face our weakness, when we face threats, when we face our own ignorance, we look to Jesus, the revelation of God's wisdom and power. The crucified and risen Jesus is the reason then that we hope. It's the reason we have hope in the face of our own weakness and ignorance. And so while we're not promised direct revelations like Daniel got about the events of world history, we have something better. We have the revelation of the mystery of Jesus Christ, the God with us who's died for our sin and who brings us into the kingdom of God. And so by faith in Christ, we can, like Daniel, respond with wisdom and faith in the face of evil tyrants. By faith in Christ, we can learn to put our fears and anxieties in their proper place, knowing that one day Christ will make everything sad go away. By faith in Christ, we can know that our sinful weakness and ignorance do not finally condemn us. We confess that because of his death on the cross, our sins are forgiven We confess that we've been blessed with the knowledge of God's will through Jesus Christ. We confess that we're not weak and and subject to permanent, eternal death, but we live and we are alive in Christ to eternal life. And one day we will reign with Christ. We confess that we are already citizens of the everlasting kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, like Daniel, we live by wisdom and faith until Christ comes again. Let's pray. Father, we pray for eyes to see your glory and the glory of Christ and the glory of our salvation in Christ. We pray that you'll help us when confronted with our own weakness and ignorance, not to despair or look to false gods to save us. Help us to see that they offer no hope. Give us eyes to look to Christ. Give us faith in your mercy and wisdom and power. Help us to turn to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.